So how about we, uh, how about we pray? Uh, I said, uh, God might make this time useful. Lord God, we ask now that uh, as we turn to your word, you'd open our hearts and minds. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, pretty much every time I talk with Scott Sanders, who I see regularly, I tell him how soft young blokes are today in ministry and uh, just how easy they've got it. Um, now, I've got to admit, I don't think that that's true, actually, but it's fun teasing Scott about it. Uh, I don't think ministry is any easier in any particular generation or time than any other time. It's just different, okay? And there's just different dramas and difficulties that you face. Uh, it's 30 years since I started uh, MTS, or so it wasn't, it was just a few of us doing ministry training then, now it's ministry training strategy. Um, I can tell ministries change just in that 30 years in terms of what, what's happening. Uh, some things that, that jump out, um, uh, the media is more anti-Christian, um, certainly in Sydney where we live, much more clearly anti-Christian. It's just not just... Christianity is irrelevant. For a big slab of the media now, Christianity is evil. Okay, that's, that's one thing we've got to put up with. Pluralism has come in big time. Um, where we live now, um, migration is so obvious, and good, I'm happy for it, but, but the world's religions have come to us. To stand up in the city like I do with City Bible Forum and say Jesus is the only way, last time I did that and someone asked a question about it, you had someone walk out. Okay, so pluralism is much, um, uh, much more in your face. And the new atheists, I'm actually pleased for them. Why? Because the new atheists have changed things in that they've pushed us back away from the postmodernist nonsense where everything everyone believes is right, back onto the field we want to play on, and that is it's right or it's wrong, there is a God or there isn't. We're back in actually dealing with reality. Okay? So I'm, I'm actually quite happy that they've, they've changed the focus back to, kind of, if you like, the real world rather than the postmodernist nonsense. Okay, so that now that's changed, but the nature of ministry's changed as well. That is, 30 years ago when I said, okay, yeah, let's have a go at ministry, there was really only one option, and that is you stepped up onto the conveyor belt, and at the end of the conveyor belt Bible college, they gave you your shirt backwards, okay? You put your shirt on backwards, you got given a grey cardigan, and you got sent out to be uh, the rector or vicar of a church, and that was it, Okay. Now, there's all sorts of different options. So uh, you can be ordained or you can be independent or you can go to student work with AFES or you can be in team ministry and then there's all sorts of, you know, music pastor, small groups pastor, uh, you know, church administration. You can be a church planter, all sorts of things. But that's really good. But I'll tell you what's changed. It used to be, when, I, when, they, when they ordained me, they gave me, I've got ordained a, an Anglican, they gave me a, a Bible, you teach this, that's good, and they gave me a prayer book, which is kind of, you use that as well, and the expectation was that I'd get a building and I'd get a bunch of people who turned up. And you'd hatch, match and dispatch, and if you did that well, your church would grow. And you'd have a shingle that you'd hang out, and the shingle, they, if you build it, they would come. Now, that was all good. Except, and, and I think when I got on 30 years ago, that was just the tail end. It was kind of tailing down that that was still kind of true. It's not true anymore. If you build it, they won't come. And so I, I think a lot, a lot of people in ministry are now confused about what, what do I do? I, just doing it by the numbers sort of thing isn't, it doesn't work anymore in most places. So what, what should I do? How do I make sense of this? And I think you see some 
some people in ministry drift into, well, I'll, I'll be a social worker. And you see some people drift into, well, depending on their view of what they're doing, they end up curators of buildings that are museums. All right. So how, what's being a pastor all about? What's ministry look like? Surprise, surprise, the Bible tells us in the pastoral letters. So 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, you, you go and you read there and that's where you'll learn or be shown the priorities of being a pastor, of what it looks like to be in, in Christian ministry. Because the pastorals are the bridge, forgive me, but I'm sure you all know this, but the pastorals are the bridge between the apostles and us. And that's why they're so important. Uh, I probably read through them once a year. I think I'm due to read through them all again. And just to get get focused again, uh, it's, and the Apostle Paul is very much aware that he's passing on the baton. So um, I'll read to you, by the way, I'm using the ESV today. Um, uh, it's a little clunky, but it, it's accurate. Um, so 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the graces in Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, or anthropos, people, who'll be able to teach others also. There's the, the, the baton being passed on. And the pastors will give you right expectations about ministry as well. Um, you know, 2 Timothy, written in the early 60s, uh, Paul's got some churches planted, uh, done a remarkable job, but they're planted in the middle of paganism under the shadow of the Roman Empire. Um, 2 Timothy's probably the last thing that Paul ever writes uh, there's a lot of heartache in there as he worries about his baby churches and people who've turned away from him and so on. Uh, what I want to do is look with you now, just for, well, I'm going to have to hit the fast forward button on a lot of it, but just to look at chapters three and four about where, where Paul says, what is it? If you're a pastor, shepherd, if you're in ministry, what should you be focusing on? And three things about the word. That's what he keeps saying. It's, it's about the word of God. Um, and I know a lot of you, you know, if, if you're here, it's probably because you're committed to this already, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded about it, okay? Now, he, he, I've got four things, and I'm sorry that the outline didn't make it into your little booklet. Four things about the word, all right? And the first thing he says is, model it, model it, all right? Um, have a look at, um, uh, where are we? Um, chapter 3, verse 10, okay? Model it. What's in it? You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. He's saying, you saw how I lived. I walked the talk, if you like. So seven things there. First three are about his ministry, you know, his teaching, his conduct. That is, the way he lived backed up what he taught. And then my aim in life. When you dig around in the original language... Excuse me, his plan or his purpose. And that is, he was deliberate about what he was doing. He didn't just drift along, deliberate about what he was doing. And then the next four, his faith, kept on trusting, okay? And then linked to that, verse 5, his patience. Um, and that's one you need in ministry, patience. And I'm, I, that's absolutely my short suit. Um, his patience kept going, uh, my love, my steadfastness. So Timothy had seen that. Um, here's something I keep forgetting. Don't, don't underestimate the power of example. And that is, you're a pastor, you're a leader, you're a, 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 in ministry. 
you live out what you teach is very powerful. Um, remember Bill Lawton, who was a lecturer when I was at Bible college, he said, in ministry, who you are is more important than what you do. Now, I'm not sure if I agree with him 100%, but the longer I go on, the more I see there's wisdom in that. Who you are is more important than what you do. And so people are watching you and your example is very powerful. That's why um, Paul says earlier in 1 Timothy, set an example for the believers. Okay, um, Who we are. Bill also said ministry is about moving chairs. I've moved a million of them. He was right about that too. Now, you see the last thing he says is steadfastness. See what Paul says. Why does he need steadfastness? Um, verse 11, uh, Timothy knew about right my persecutions and suffering. Um, what happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord persecuted me. I'll tell you what I've done uh, in my quiet times oh, over the last 12 months. I read through the book of Acts uh, with a pencil in my hand and went to the back of the Bible with a map. You know, they've got Paul's missionary journeys. Right? We can get it off the net easily. And I followed... As I read Acts, I followed where he went and what he did and then how he retraced his steps. And basically, he, he kept going over the same ground again and again and strengthening the churches. Very interesting to see what he did. But you go and look it up. In, in, um, in Antioch, Acts 13.50, he's driven out of the city. In Iconium, they attempt to stone him. Uh, Lystra is the one I like. Um, he goes to Lystra. The Lystrarines want to make him a god first and then the next thing they want to kill him. But we're, we're told Acts 14.19... But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. So he got up and went back in. On the next day, he went on uh, with Barnabas uh, to Derby. Now, when you read that list, it's a little surprising as he says, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. The Lord did but there was a fair bit of um, bruising and bleeding going on as well, I think. Uh, and I know I've, I've been feeling a bit tired and sorry for myself lately, and I just wonder what Paul would say uh, you know, if I said, well, actually, I'm feeling a bit tired and uh, sorry for myself. I suspect he would say to me, harden up, sweetheart. Um, uh, dry your eyes, princess, keep going, compared to what he, what he put up with. Now, uh, what's he say? It, it's coming for all of us. See verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, once you say that persecution is coming, we don't need to look for it. Don't need to be a goose, don't need to jump up and say, persecute me, but it's coming. Um, uh, I, it's not too hard to see the seeds of it or the clouds of it on the horizon in Australia. Uh, one way or another. But notice where, um, notice what he says about evil people, uh, imposters deceiving. He's saying people will actually be within, I think he's saying within the church who will deceive others. If you're, Richard Dawkins isn't an imposter, okay? It's those within the church, uh, within the, uh, within the organised church, if you like, who will deceive people and so on and so persecution yep expect it now i don't know if he means the evil people and imposters are the ones who bring the persecution that happens too um interesting in years of watching and helping and trying to help young guys in ministry young guys girls 
I don't know anybody who's left the ministry in Australia because of pagan persecution. But I know lots of people who've left because of persecution from people within the organised church. Okay? So it, uh, expect it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Sheep bite. Uh, they're not really sheep, but anyway. Okay, so that's the first one, the word model it. And then he talks about the word treasure it. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly because I want to say a little bit more about the third one. In, in verses 14 to 16, so you've got the word model it, live it out, then the word treasure it. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. Who did he learn it from? Can you tell me? Who did Timothy learn the word from? Exactly. His mother and his grandma. Exactly. Um, Lois and uh, Eunice, 2 Timothy 1.5. Interesting, you know, I think I've always... I didn't become a believer until I was 20, but I have always believed in God. I've always known God's there. Why? Because my dear sweet mum taught two little boys, me and my brother, Sunday afternoon, sitting on her bed, reading the Bible to us, bribing us with chocolate. Okay? And reading Bible stories. And I, I just... God has always been there. Uh, Never underestimate the importance of teaching kids. Uh, verse 15, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So they'll give you wisdom for salvation. Notice now, the ESV's gone for sacred writings. Can anyone tell me another, verse 15, another translation? Better than NIV or? It could be holy writings. Yeah, it's just the same, interesting, See verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed, and then in verse 15 we've got the sacred writings. It's just a plural of writings in verse 15, and then the singular of writings in verse 16. Same, same word, same idea. And the word just means written stuff. It's just that the New Testament only ever uses that word about the scriptures. Okay? Um, and, it, and it does mean the New Testament as well, because Peter, in Peter's second letter, he calls what Paul writes... Scripture as well, okay? Um, wise for salvation, I'm going to keep going. And then verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, reproof means uh, to tell someone or state someone uh, has done something wrong. And uh, a little exercise, I went and looked up the Greek for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And I found out the Greek words mean teaching, reproof, correction, and training. All right. Our English translations are good. You can trust them. <laughs> okay, verse 17. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Interesting, the man of God, uh, it, pretty much a technical phrase in the Old Testament, referring to the, the prophets uh, or the, the leaders. So it's used about Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, and 83 times about uh, the prophets. So the man of God, the one who speaks for God, you have everything you need uh, in, in the word. Um, I don't think it's wrong to learn from business books or read Jim Collins' Good to Great or strategic planning or coaching. No, it's not wrong. It's just it's teaching the words got to be the, uh, the beating heart of what we do. Okay, so model it, treasure it. And the last one, uh, preach it. Uh, or the third one, preach it. Model it, treasure it, preach it. Four verse one. And remember, this is quite possibly Paul... No doubt is aware this may be the last thing he ever writes. So he writes to his young lieutenant and says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. 
So basically saying, son, remember, you'll stand before the judge on the basis of this. Okay, you'll be judged about this one. So he kind of jacks it right up. Then verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Um, so preach it, reprove. It's actually the same uh, word as back in verse 16, reproof. Uh, same word. Rebuke, exhort with great patience. Um, let, me, let me just um, put the rant into itinerant, okay? So I, I realise that the, the last little bit of the word itinerant is rant and uh, uh, I'm about to do it, so forgive me. What's Paul saying? He's saying... It's not enough to just go through the motions. That, that's the point. I've been to lots of church meetings, and as a kid I was dragged along where the, the minister stands up and goes through the motions of preaching the word, and the congregation sits there and goes through the motions of listening, and everyone goes home. And I think Paul's saying, it's not enough. Uh, You've got to make them listen, or at least work hard at it. And you think, no, of course they're listening because it's, matter, it's a matter of life and death. No, you can sit and listen or you can sit and, and go through the motions of listening even when it's a matter of life and death. Let me ask you a question, real, not rhetorical. Can you think of a, of a place or a time where someone stands up and speaks about, literally, about a matter of life and death and actions that could have life and death consequences... And nobody listens. Well done. Well done, Clayton. On a plane. Yep, I heard the talk yesterday morning. I'm expecting to hear it this afternoon. And so the, uh, they, the flight attendants stand up and they go through the thing about, you know, you're going to crash and um, life jacket and there's a whistle for attracting attention. Although I always wonder, it's like a 400-tonne aeroplane just crashed into the ocean and you're going to blow a whistle to get people's attention. I don't know. Like, seems, anyway, it seems unnecessary. Um, why does nobody listen? That's exactly right. They don't expect it's going to happen because the people giving the talk obviously don't think it's going to happen. Okay? You say, oh, well, and you, you, different scenario. Okay, we're flying back, to, um, uh, flying back to Sydney this afternoon. We're about halfway and then one of the flight attendants walks out and she's ashen grey and shaking and she starts to give the safety speech again, and her, her hands are shaking, and she's talking, and then and one of the engines stops. Same talk, all of a sudden, wait a minute, she actually means it. Okay. And I, I wonder whether people don't listen because so often the preacher doesn't seem to actually believe. The way the preacher's speaking doesn't actually fit the material and it seems like he or she doesn't believe it. Let me read you what Helmut Thielicke, um he's a, a famous German preacher uh, from the middle of last century, says in his book um, The Trouble with the Church, which got some interesting stuff in it. He says this, This is the point, it seems to me, where the secret distrust of Christian preaching is smouldering. Behind all the obvious and superficial criticisms, such as the sermon is boring, remote from life, irrelevant, there is, I am convinced, this ultimate reservation, namely that the man who bores others must also be boring himself. And the man who bores himself is not really living in what he so boringly hands out. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
In this case, the treasure of the heart seems not to be identical with what what he is commending to others. The attractions by which his heart is moved seem to come from some other source. So we miss the very thing that my teacher of theology was talking about, the peculiar personal tone. For that peculiar tone will be immediately audible if the speaker himself is in what he says, if he gives of himself and puts his whole heart into it. So I... Here's the rant, Aya. I hear guys preach about sin and there doesn't appear to be any heartache. I hear them preach about the cross and they don't seem to grieve over it. I hear them preach about the resurrection and they don't seem happy about it. Okay? I just, it's, if, if you're not in your material, and I'm not saying fake it, I'm saying if you're not in your material, they won't listen to you and they won't believe you. All right? um, so, so that's the first one. If I had a second one, I've got four, four quick points in this rant. Um, and, uh, Next one is this. We've got to know our people. Okay? Know our people. I listened to a couple of young guys recently. It's not just young guys, but I've been asked to critique a few talks lately. And there were talks that were absolutely correct. There was nothing, there was nothing wrong in them at all. Um, and, and the guy I'm thinking of is not from Adelaide, all right? Nothing wrong with it at all. But it was a talk that could have been given to any church anywhere in Australia. And it didn't seem like he—it was—he didn't seem like he kind of really knew his people or engaged with them. And and I wanted to think, well, wait a minute, why why are we paying you? His question is worth asking. Why are we paying this guy um, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, whatever it is, when we could just for two dollars fifty a week play a Tim Keller sermon? And he's a red hot preacher, okay. Why are we paying? Why are we paying you all this money when we could just play a Tim Keller talk? The answer is, I think, we we expect that you will know your people, you will pastor your people, you will love your people, you will, as you teach them, you'll understand the, you know, the temptations they have, the struggles they have, the worries they have, the anxieties they have, their tiredness, their dreams, their, and so on, and you'll massage the word into them. Yeah? If you if you just stand up and give the the standard, here's the truth. It's like a spray tan. It, it you know it hits the outside, but it's not. I don't know. You, when I listen to Keller, um, I, and I, I you know listen to him at the gym or something. Keller talks to his he he massages the truth into them because he knows them. He knows what it's like to live in New York. He understands them. He, so it, it's know our people and how do we how do we show them? I tell you what they're asking. The people who sit there, it's been interesting. I've spent some time as a civilian in churches in the last few years. And to sit in the pew and listen is a very different experience. When you're sitting there, I'll tell you what you're thinking. Does this guy live in the same world as I live in? Does he share my temptations, my struggles, my worries, my anxieties, my tiredness? My... They want to know that. And, and when they see that you do, you will massage the word into them. Okay? Third thing, really quickly, we've got to learn, and we've got to learn to speak to two audiences. Okay? A, a preacher creates their own audience over time. It's as, as you preach, you preach week by week, or as you teach, you'll create your own audience. What I mean is that if you, if you speak, um, uh, say you inherit a church that's all women and children, and I love some of my best friends are women, I have four children, I've done that, right? 
If you only ever speak to the women and kids, you won't get men there because you're saying don't come. If you preach so that illustrations at work with men as well, people will think, oh, I, I could invite my husband, my brother, my neighbour, I could, etc. Right. You, you, you tend to... Okay. If you only ever say, we Christians, if you only preach to Christians, you, you won't get non-Christians to come because people won't bring them because the message keeps going on, this is a Christian club. If you speak and, and you're, you're addressing the non-Christian worldview carefully, respectfully, etc., some apologetics or whatever, even if there's no non-Christians there, okay, what it's saying to people is, hey, wait a minute, I could bring Fred, Bill, Jane, Sally, whoever, I could bring my non-Christian friends because we're, we're addressing the non-Christian worldview, we're asking them to walk towards Jesus, and I don't just mean one sentence, John 3.16 at the end, we're, okay, and we'll, um, it, it gives people permission to, to bring their friends and, uh, and so on. And it's how do you do that respectfully? Um, I don't know if any of you guys, here's one more plug for Keller. Any of you guys um, preaching Christ in a postmodern world? Tim Keller and um, Clowney. Ed, Ed Clowney? Yeah? It's free on iTunes. It's like 20 hours of Keller and Clowney lecturing on preaching. On iTunes, it's gold. Okay, but what Keller says is this: if you just hammer on the non-Christian worldview from outside, they're not going to listen. But if you can show that you understand their worldview, stand beside them, even empathise with it, right, and then critique it, it's a whole different thing. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but but how how we do that respectfully, carefully, that's the real art. Uh, and the New Testament expects that there will be unbelievers who will be part of church meetings. 1 Corinthians 14, okay, the, uh, the outsider, the idiotes. Okay. Number four on the rant, okay. We've got to take the doctrine of giftedness seriously, I think. Um, and that is, if you're not a good preacher, don't put yourself in the situation where you've got to preach every week. Um, some of us are gifted in some things and some of us are gifted in others. And so uh, I think I say if week by week you look out and people aren't listening or people are looking at their watches or uh, all on their phones or whatever, you, you've got to ask yourself, wait a minute, if God hasn't gifted me to do this, he's gifted me to do something else, I should be doing that. Uh, we just got to, you know, like we... Anyway. Okay. Um... I think I'd rather ask if you've got any comments than go. Thoughts or comments? That, there's my four-point rant on uh, Preach the Word. Uh, yeah, John? I think it was third point. Uh, preaching talks that could be running more into this. What impact do you think the internet, most in our church plant, is telling people that most guys are recording their talks, goes up on the web? The internet, yeah. Um, look, it's interesting. Oh, yeah. It, it is a it is a problem. I know one preacher who I love dearly and he's great. And I noticed I listened to him. I hadn't heard him for a couple of years. And I listened to him and I realised he's preaching to the world, not to his people. It wasn't he. 
he yeah and and all of a sudden the thing had lost the sharp edge i'd heard him years before when he just preached to his people and he'd say outrageous things and and kind of sharp edge things and compassion it it kills your preaching to the the people you're talking to now sort of say it can keller manages to do it but i he's one on the planet you know so you've got to preach to the people that that are there i tell you part of the other problem uh, and it's it's the listeners who need the uppercut on this one, and that is, you, you get you can with a click of a button now you can get you know Piper or Keller or um, Carson or Driscoll or whoever it is, and and people love listening to them, and God bless them, I'm glad they're there. But then you start comparing them to the ordinary punters, my local preacher, like you know Baldy Headed Al or whoever it is, and you think. Oh, you know, I don't really want it. How was the church tonight? Oh, the talk wasn't as good as John Piper. You know, oh, duh, all right. So, but the advantage that the local that the local guys got is this: you know your people, and that's why I think you can't. We can't just preach spray tan sermons. We need to massage the word into them because we know them and we spend time with them and we go and sit with them at lunch at work and we, you know. So when you preach, it's it's the word into their lives in a way that John Piper can't because he's on the other side of the world. But um, you want to push that one back a bit? Uh, or, Ray? Yeah. Um, earlier you said in, in, in days gone by, if you build it, they will come. I, I think that was more the case 50 yeah. years ago, yep. Yep, that's good. Picked up that logical inconsistency. Uh, what I think I'm saying in the first part is basically nominalism in Australia is dead. Just turning up because I put out the Church of England shingle, it's pretty much dead. And past uh, models of church growth worked on that. And that is that people would send their kids to Sunday school. We'd do good kids' ministry with those that were sent. They'd grow up, they'd become... Well... They're not getting sent to Sunday school anymore. We've got to work out, actually got to do the hard work now. Okay? The, the creating your own audience over time has to do with invitation and, and who's welcome and who um, feels like they can invite their friends. I, th- I think that's the case. If you... Um, relevance. Uh, yeah, and relevance. Yeah, exactly. But if... I saw a young guy um, in a church plant who will remain nameless, but if he ever listens to this on the web, he'll know who it is. But anyway, <laughs> he and he, we had it was the second week he'd ever met with his church plant. He had 16, 17 people, but it was a public meeting, and he he stood up there and he talked about their community groups and mission and outreach and what they were trying to do. It was very logical, it was good in church, and at the end of it, I said to him, "Mate, you talked about." community groups, outreach, evangelism, all that kind of insider stuff in a public meeting. And he said, yeah, yeah, but I knew everyone in the room. They were all Christian. But what had he just said to those 16 people sitting there? Don't bring your non-Christian friends because dumb insider daggy things get said. And I'm, everyone in the room is thinking, oh, man, I'm so glad I didn't bring Fred or Jane because it... So it's it's... 
in your public meetings, you create the environment where people are keen to bring their friends or... Uh, and that applies to preach um, for young people, old people, men, women, that, that kind of thing. Okay? And it'll take a while, but you will build... Um, you, you, your audience will adapt to how you preach. I think that's right. Yep. Sir? Um, my observation has been, and this is my limited experience as well, that if you, what you said before about um, loving the people and understanding them is what John Piper and Tim Keller and Rutgers School are unable to do. So if the people know that you love them, and if you make a traditional effort to and ask God to give you love to the people, then they do tend to, well, they just, uh, they, they respond to that. And yeah. That's right. It's it's people and the word, and you yep, to, and and love them. Yep, yep. With patience, correct, rebuke, all those things he's saying is actually know your people and apply. Now, what's interesting when you listen to Driscoll, Piper, Keller, they lo- they're doing it for their people. You know, Mark Driscoll loves his people. That's why he's always beating up the young men. Okay, <laughs> um, and and Piper and Keller loves his New Yorkers, and that just sticks out. And we can love our people in a way that the stellar preachers can't specifically yeah that's it um really i've just stolen five minutes scott really quickly the the last one is um uh expect a reward from the word and i'll just show you um the apostle paul says there see uh, verse seven i've fought the good fight i've finished the race i've kept the faith um uh, henceforth there's later no sorry verse six i want to go back verse six I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and my time, the time of my departure has come. Paul's expecting that he will die, that he'll actually be executed soon. Um, and so as he gets to the end, he, he, he's passing this on to Timothy. It's a great sense of urgency. And then verse 7, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all uh, who have loved his appearing. Uh, Some Christians are kind of embarrassed about the idea of rewards. Okay, And so you mention, oh, doing this for a reward. You say, oh, no, I'm not. Of course, I'm not doing this for a reward. um, uh, I'm just doing it because it's the right thing, and uh, I love Jesus. I'm not expecting a reward from Jesus. I am. Right? I've worked my little backside off for 30 years. I'm reward. Yes, please. Okay. Yes, but and you know what? Jesus is not embarrassed about rewards and the New Testament writers are not embarrassed about rewards at all. But the thing is what are we expecting as a reward? You know, you get to drive an Audi in heaven rather than a Commodore or something or uh, a bigger house. No, no, no. Have a think and I've just got to, really quickly in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, okay, the guy who, who gets the five talents and makes it five more or two talents and two more, what's their reward? Sorry? Yes, exactly, exactly. So the reward for having served Jesus is that you get to serve him even more. And joy, it's found in you know, joy. So you've served Jesus, great, here's the opportunity, even more. Uh, and as he says, come to your master's happiness. Um, or the reward that Paul is looking forward to, I think, is this. And I'll just read you, take notes. Um, it's um, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. You see he talks about a crown of righteousness. What will that be? 
you know, gold inlay and jewels. And all that. No, no, no. He says to the Thessalonians, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming, is it not you? Okay. Uh, for you are our, our glory and joy. Uh, what's he looking forward to? He will see the results of his ministry and that is people will be there in the new creation and that will be his reward. Uh, and so, guys, um, it's hard work teaching the word. Again, you, know, you get to, you know, Bible talk number, I think I'm up to like 3,000 and something now. I think I worked out, okay? Uh, and poor old Kathy over there has listened to half of them, so she deserves a much better reward. <laughs> um, and you'll do it over years of the Bible with people and the people who don't listen and patience, and that your reward will be there. There will be people in heaven because you've opened the word and shared your life and, and, and so on with them. Okay? So there's uh, four things about the word. Uh, model it, treasure it, preach it. Look forward to your reward.